Tiffany Talks. Good morning. You're listening to Tiffany Talks. I'm your host, Tiffany Linnell. Thank you so much for joining me for another day that the Lord has made. (laughs) I mean, God did make it. So, you know, hey, we're here. What can we say? Make the best of today. I hope you are already making the best of your day. If you have missed any of the previous episodes, of course, you can catch them. You should already be following the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, whichever, you know, suits your boat. I have a lot of news today. I also am going to bring, uh, y'all know her, well, I know her, and hopefully y'all have heard her before on the show. But if you're new, uh, I have a returning guest, Mrs. Erica Benson, who's going to come and talk to us about some things that I couldn't even put into words because she's smart, smart. And yeah, so I invited her on the show. So she'll be here a little bit later. You don't want to miss that conversation. Um, But I've got a lot of stuff to discuss today. A lot. Um, I want to go ahead and congratulate Darnell Frazier on a special citation that she received from the Pulitzer Prize uh, Committee. If you do not know who Darnella Frazier is, Darnella Frazier, actually, I'll just read what is on the Pulitzer site. Uh, Darnella Frazier for courageously recording the murder of George Floyd, a video that spurred protests against police brutality around the world, highlighting the crucial role of citizens in journalists' quest for truth and justice. She has received a special citation from the Pulitzer Prize Committee. Uh, She's in great company. Ida B. Wells received one. Y'all know how I feel about Ida B. Wells. Uh, Ida B. Wells received one in 2020 uh, for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching. Uh, Aretha Franklin got one for her incredible, indelible, I'm sorry, contribution to American music and culture for more than five decades. Hank Williams got one in 2010 uh, for his craftsmanship as a songwriter who expressed universal feelings with poignant simplicity and played a pivotal role in transforming country music into a major musical and cultural force in American life. So she's in great company. I cannot imagine having to film something like that. She has stated uh, that it was a traumatic, life-changing experience for her. Um, I, I, I just... There was a journalist, Anne-Marie Lipinski, who tweeted during the trial, the video record she made is one of the most important civil rights documents in a generation. I don't disagree with that at all. Um, So congratulations to Darnella Frazier. I, like I said, I can only imagine. Um, I am continuously praying for her and for others who have had to or who have filmed or witnessed such terrible um, 
traumatic experiences. So yeah, kudos to the Pulitzer community and the Pulitzer board for recognizing um, Darnella Frazier and congratulations to Darnella Frazier uh, for that. Um, Today in Black History, Bessie Coleman Y'all, if y'all don't know who Bessie Coleman is, Bessie Coleman was the first African-American woman and first Native American to hold a pilot license. She earned her license in France on June 15th in 1921 and was the first black person to earn an international pilot license. Uh, You can learn a lot about Bessie Bessie Coleman. Uh, You can go to BessieColeman.com and you can read all about her roots in Texas and how she moved to Chicago during and lived there during the 1919 race riot. Um, beautiful, beautiful life that unfortunately ended, I think, too soon. She um, died in a plane crash. Um, but learn all about Bessie Coleman, BessieColeman.com. Now, of course, you know, I got to start your morning off with a wonderful inspirational quote. So the quote today from Miss the Incomparable Ella Baker. I I could do a whole show on Ella Baker alone, but we don't have time for that. So Ella Baker said, give light and people will find the way. Give light and people will find the way. I want to encourage you even just to do that first part. Give light. Be mindful of what you are giving today. Be intentional about what you are giving today to yourself and to others. Imagine what the world would be if everyone every day just gave a little bit more light. So be the light, bring the light, give light today. I've got a great song coming up for you. I'm in a mood. I was feeling a little Vashon this morning, so I'm gonna play a little Vashon. And then I've got way more show coming up for you next. You don't wanna miss it. I'll be right back. Tiffany Talks. Welcome back to Tiffany Talks. And y'all, you just can't make this stuff up. So two black students, Ikeria Washington and Layla Temple were forced to share their graduation honors. Ikeria Washington and Layla Temple attended West Point High School in West Point, Mississippi. They were named valedictorian and salutatorian this year, but the parents of two white students fought the results, saying essentially there's no way that our our students weren't the real valedictorian and salutatorian. One of the parents of one of the white students said, we've been tracking this since the seventh grade. And they essentially said that there was a miscalculation. The school said there was a miscalculation and and named the two white students co-valedictorian and co-salutatorian with Ikeria Ikeria Washington and Layla Temple, the two black students. Let me tell y'all something. If my child earns the title of valedictorian or salutatorian, and then a white student tries to take that from them, all hell's gonna break loose in that school. 
in that county and that could, all hell is going to break loose. Um, it seems like the parents of the two black students are still trying to figure out what they can do, need to do, or anything like that about this situation because the school did take one of the young lady's stoles. Uh, you know, you get extra honor boards and things like that when you graduate with honors. This is not a small feat. Um, apparently the two black students took harder courses than the two white students. Um, and so the school officials are essentially saying it was a mistake on the guidance counselor's part in the announcement because they were confused. There was confusion over which method of uh, checking the grades they should have used. Should they have used a weighted GPA that takes into account um, or a standard GPA or a weighted GPA, one that takes into account what kind of classes the grades are earned in. So apparently they removed the weighted GPA and went with another calculation in order to make this work for the two white students. This is a problem. Like, can we demand that they leave the valedictorian and salutatorian titles where they were with Ikeria Washington and Layla Temple. I don't know what can be done, but this is a problem. One of the young ladies said, uh, one of the two black students said, she, they keep putting a three on her transcript instead of, you know, as her, her ranking. So she's not sure if that's going to mess up any of her salutatorian uh, scholarships or anything like that that she has gotten. Ooh, y'all. Y'all, God help whatever schools my children go to, because let something like this happen with my children. I'm telling, first of all, it's not just gonna be me. I got a whole village, whole village of people. You don't want that smoke, okay? Yeah, you just don't want that smoke. So future school officials of my children, teachers, professors, all of that, I'm telling you, you don't want the smoke of this village. My my friends, we call it the zoo. You don't want it. I'm telling and everybody everybody who's in the zoo that's listening to this, y'all know y'all don't want that smoke for any of the children in our village. I, I, this is asinine. This is asinine. This is ridiculous. I carry a Washington and Layla Temple. I salute both of you and congratulate you. And I really do hope that they rectify this in a suitable fashion for the two black students. I don't care about the two white students and not just cause they're white. If they had been any other race and tried this, other than black, maybe. Well, no, I'm gonna be honest. I do have a problem that it's a white student, white students doing this to black students. I also have a problem that they're of course claiming race has nothing to do with it or anything like that. But in an interview, one of the young ladies, uh, one of the young uh, student, black students said, I just find it hard to believe that this had nothing to do with race because if it didn't, then why would you automatically assume that there had to be a miscalculation because two black female students got valedictorian and salutatorian. I agree wholeheartedly. I call BS and this is ass nine and ridiculous. And y'all need to give those young ladies the titles that they earned and that they deserved and not try to give them to somebody else, to two white students to try and appease them. This is ridiculous. And West Point High School, you should absolutely be ashamed. And I hope that the parents get justice. I hope that these young ladies get justice and I'm gonna leave that at that. Um, but congratulations to Ikeria Washington and Layla Temple, the real valedictorian and salutatorian of West Point High School.
In other BS news, or this is ridiculous news, a U.S. Intel report is saying or warning that there may be more violence from QAnon followers who are believing the disillusioned 45 who was already left office but has been spewing lies that he's going to be back in, in office by August. If you don't know, there have been uh, different, they're still doing voting audits, y'all, still to date. Um, and so Trump is going around talking about he's going to be back, you know, in the office by August and this is just temporary and blah, 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 whatever. You cannot make this stuff up. So now QA non-followers, basically the uh, report is saying that they have moved because a lot of their stuff is being taken down from major platforms. They're moving to smaller known platforms and radicalizing themselves and each other and all of this. And the... The report is saying that they could target Democrats and other political opponents uh, because of all of these false prophecies. And I'm not even going to get into them, y'all. It's don't go down the rabbit hole. I'm telling you, just don't do it. It involves cannibals, uh, child sex trafficking ring, false idol worship, a shadow president presidency. It's crazy. Okay, I'm gonna just put that out there. It's crazy. Don't even try to go down the rabbit hole of what all the QAnon followers believe and all of that. I was listening to an interview uh, a couple months ago where a woman was talking about how she got sucked into it all and how she came out of this disillusionment. Um, and it was just astonishing to me to hear her describe the rabbit hole that she went down of how she even began to believe some of the uh, prophecies and things like that, that QA non-followers believe. And that when Trump lost in the Capitol uh, riot, violence, domestic terrorist incident, all the things that we're gonna call it actually happened, how it showed her, okay, now wait a minute. This isn't coming true. This isn't coming true. This isn't coming true. Maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I should actually take another look at this. Um, so it was just really, really interesting to hear. Uh, but I say this because I don't want us to sleep on these warnings. Um, there, I see a lot of, not a lot. I see reports like these get kind of skirted under the table or whatever. Um, I think I mentioned in another show months ago, a report that uh, like KKK and other domestic terrorist groups and organizations and white supremacy groups and hate groups were infiltrating police uh, unions and uh, police departments and government official capacities and things like that. Uh, there's a full one or two, maybe three reports on those warnings. Um, and I just don't see one, them being talked about enough and two, anything actually being done about them. Um, so I, I, I want to be mindful of these warnings and these reports as they come out because y'all, I, I just, I feel like it's gonna get worse before it gets better. I just really do. Now on the flip side, Harvard just released a study. Harvard Radcliffe Institute released the results of their study that the Black Lives Matter protesters were overwhelmingly peaceful. Overwhelmingly peaceful. 
the top of their uh, release, which I'll uh, put it on my social media. The very first sentence says, the Black, Life, Black Lives Matter uprisings were remarkably non-violent. When there was violence, very often police or counter-protesters were reportedly directing it at the protesters. We have been saying this for I don't know how long, that it is not BLM protesters doing, uh, conducting some of the violent things that happen. I am so glad this report, and this is enough, reports like this also get skirted under the table. This is evidence of what we've been saying. Uh, the report says since 2017, we have been collecting data on political crowds in the United States, including the protests that surged during the summer. We have almost finished collecting data from May to June, having already documented 7,305 events in thousands of towns and cities in all 50 states and DC involving millions of attendees. We make two assumptions. First, when po politicians and officials categorize the protests as violent, they are usually envisioning property destruction or interpersonal violence in which they infer, infer that BLM protesters are attacking police, bystanders, and property. Second, using several measures to evaluate protest behavior offers a better assessment than the blanket term, quote, violence. For example, we disaggregate property destruction from interpersonal violence, analyzing separately the number of injuries or deaths among protesters and police. We are thinking about how gathering even finer grain data in the future could help further assign precise responsibility for violent acts. Here is what we found. Based on 7,305 events, the overall levels of violence and property destruction were low. And most of the violence that did take place was in fact directed against the BLM protesters. Police made arrests in 5% of the protest events with over 8,500 reported arrests or more. Police used tear gas or related chemical substances in 2.5% of these events. Uh, protesters or bystanders were reported injured in 1.6% of the protests. In total, at least three BLM protesters and one other person were killed while protesting in Omaha, Austin, and Kenosha, Wisconsin. One anti-fascist protester killed a far-right group member during a confrontation in Portland, Oregon. Law enforcement killed the alleged assailant several days later. I just want to read one sentence again just to highlight what this says. Based on 7,305 events, the overall levels of violence and property destruction were low. And most of the violence that did take place was in fact directed against the BLM protesters. We said what we said. I don't wanna hear that BLM is a domestic terrorist group or a dangerous group or anything like that. It is a very simple message. Black lives matter. And as I always say, and as I will continue to say, that is the bare minimum is that our lives matter. We, it, uh, I, I'm gonna put this on my social media. I'm gonna put it on every social media thing that I have. Read the full article, look at the data. I'm happy.
happy to take questions. I'm happy to reach out to Harvard Radcliffe Institute if I need to and have them come over here to really dive deep into this. But I don't want to hear y'all call BLM protesters violent anymore. This, among other articles, data, do the, look at the data for yourself if you want to. If you got that much time on your hand, really sit and look at the data of arrest and protest and the violence and who actually carried out that violence. There are plenty of police reports in municipalities in different cities where they came after the protests and after they actually went through the arrest to say that most of those arrests were counter protesters or those inciting violence to try and make it look like it was the BLM protesters. So do your own research if you don't believe me or, you know, Harvard Radcliffe Institute, but what what do any of us know? I got a lot more show for you today. You don't want to miss it. Um, I still have the discussion with Erica Benson coming up in the second hour. She will be here. You don't want to miss that conversation. I'm very, very excited to to have her on the show. She's always bringing a lot of uh, knowledge and information. We're going to talk about the Keystone Pipeline and all of that information going on um, because I know it's a lot of it's a lot of information on social media with that and line three and all of that. So I brought her uh, here so that I can ask her the questions I can't answer for y'all because I don't know. So you don't want to miss that. That's coming up in the second hour. She'll be here with us. I got more show coming up for you. I'll be right back. Agree? Disagree? Be heard. Record your feedback on today's show and email it to Tiffany Talks at bossfm.com. You may hear yourself on a future show. Tiffany Talks. Welcome back to Tiffany Talks. Um, So I'm going to start with the good news and then I'll give you the BS behind the good news. Judge Katanji Jackson has been, Katanji Brown Jackson has been confirmed to uh, the District of Columbia Circuit as of yesterday. Uh, She is now in the nation's top appeals court and is considered a top choice for Biden's Supreme Court nominee pick. This is great. Um, I mentioned another judge who was confirmed and that there are, I think, 71 positions. No, there were five. There's a lot of judgeships and positions and courts that are open. Before the Trump administration, there were 230 judges dumped into the system. We talked about that last week, had a whole family discussion. If you missed that, check out the podcast from last week. Anywho, Biden has pledged to name the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court. Jackson, now Judge Jackson, is one of his top picks. She was a public defender, was on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, was a lawyer for the U.S. DOJ, Department of Justice, uh, at the solicitor office uh, during Bush, son Bush, and Obama's presidencies. So she's got experience, okay? Now, raggedy Mitch McConnell, and I, those who know me know my real nickname for him, but I won't say it online, on air. Uh, He is saying that regardless, he will not pick a Biden SCOTUS pick. He's just gonna block it. He will not support it at all. His reason, y'all wait for it. His reason is that he doesn't wanna cause an imbalanced system. (sighs) 
Now, when I read it, I said, now, wait a minute. Didn't you just do the same blankety blank when Trump was in office? Y'all had to get a Supreme Court nominee through because it was just the right thing to do. He said they did it then because they were of the same party. You cannot make this BS up, y'all. It's literally, my God today, I got nothing. Congratulations to Judge Jackson. Um, I got nothing else. Moving on. Lynn Manuel, first of all, before I start on this story, I would like to just go ahead and put out there, I love, love Lynn Manuel Miranda. Love Lynn Manuel Miranda. I can't tell you how many times I've watched Hamilton. I have seen Hamilton, I think, three times on Broadway. Um, so, and of course, as soon as it hit Disney Plus, we had a family night in the house and we watched it. And we've had a couple of those since it came out on Disney Plus. So, love Lynn Manuel. Could not wait for In the Heights to be released um, because I did not get to see it on Broadway. There's a whole story about In the Heights. Anyway, Lin-Manuel Miranda is now apologizing for the lack of African Latino representation. If you have not seen this on social media, it is a thing. Um, I'm gonna play a clip. This was an interview that the group did with the director of In the Heights. So I'm gonna let you hear her question and I'll let you hear the response of the director and some of the cast. So. Here's here's an interview from The Root. Congratulations on In the Heights. It was a lovely musical. But as a Black woman of Cuban descent, specifically from New York City, it would be remiss of me to not acknowledge the fact that most of your principal actors were light-skinned or white-passing Latinx people. So with that, what are your thoughts on the lack of Black Latinx people represented in your film? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was something uh, we talked about and um, and I needed to be educated about, of course. In the end, you know, when we were looking at the cast, we tried to get the people who were best for those roles, and that specifically, and we saw a lot of people, people like Daphne or Dasha, but I hear you on, um, you know, trying to fill those cast members with darker skin. I think that's that's I think that's a a, a a really good conversation to have. Something that we should be all be talking about. I didn't realize until making this movie that I I didn't really get to see myself or people that look like my siblings that are darker than me on screen. And I didn't realize how much that affected the limitations that I put on myself, being someone who wanted to be an artist and be an actress and, you know, even be in in, in the Latin music industry, uh, being Afro-Latina. I feel so blessed. We get to express the diversity that is within the Latinx community in a way that we haven't been able to see on screen because so many times we're put on screen in one particular way. And since we get so little opportunities, everyone wants to claim that one, one story because it's all we got. I think it's important to, to note though that in the audition process, which was a long audition process, there were a lot of Afro-Latinos there, a lot of darker skinned people. And I think they were looking for just the right people for the roles, for the person that embodied the, each character 
in in the fullest extent and i think we are all very much like our characters so much so that Elaine, a lot of times it didn't even feel like we were acting it just kind of they just kind of let us live in there and because the cast ended up being us and washington heights is a melting pot of black and latinx people John and Lynn wanted the dancers and the big numbers to feel very truthful to what the community looks like. Did you not see that in the um, in the dancers as well? Those are roles that historically we've been able to fill, right? We've been able to be the dancers and we've been able to be in the hair salons and, you know, this and that. But like a lead, you know, that's 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 the breakthrough. We want to see black people in the heights. We want to see Afro Panamanians. Black Cubans, Black Dominicans, you know, that's what we want to see. And that's what, you know, we were yearning for and hoping for. I hope that at least uh, that encourages more people to tell more stories and get out there and do it right then. Sir, what? You hope that this encourages others to get out and do it right then? That that was really what you said? Oh, okay. You can listen to the full interview on YouTube or The Root or it's on their Twitter page and all that. It came out a, a few days ago. But what you hope that it encourages others to get out and do it right? Okay. Here is Lin-Manuel's response. Um, I'm seeing the discussion around Afro-Latino representation in our film this weekend, and it is clear that many in our dark-skinned Afro-Latino community don't feel sufficiently represented within it, particularly among the leading roles. Uh, So Lin-Manuel is a Washington Heights native, He said the work feels extractive of the community and trying to paint a mosaic of this community, we fell short. I'm truly sorry. I'm learning from the feedback. I thank you for raising it and I'm listening. I'm trying to hold space for both the incredible pride in the movie we made and be accountable for our shortcomings. I appreciate, you can see his full statement um, on his uh, Twitter page as well. And I will um, also tweet that out myself. I'll retweet it out myself. It's, I mean, it's a problem. Um, I was talking about it on social media and one of my friends uh, commented, um, I haven't seen the movie and was excited to watch, but now I don't know if I should watch it because I won't see myself. The fact that the movie named after a primarily black Latino neighborhood, but the leads were not represented of the neighborhood is mind boggling. I, and I retweeted her tweet, um, so you can see that on my social media as well. I am not Afro-Latina, so I cannot, um, I, I can't say that I am a part of this community. I can say I get it, and I can say I don't disagree. Um, I have not watched the film yet either. I was very excited, as I mentioned, to watch In the Heights. I am a huge Lin-Manuel Miranda fan, love all of his work, and I, I really thought that In the Heights was going to be good. And from my understanding, the Broadway show is a bit more diverse. Um, one of the points that was highlighted in that Root interview where she says, um, 
you know, he's talking about, well, did you not see it in the, basically in the ensemble pieces of the film uh, where they're dancing in the streets and doing different things. And the point of the interviewer saying, we always get those roles. We can always get the dancing roles. We can always get the ensemble roles. We can always get the background roles. It is about the lead character. So yes, I'm glad Lin-Manuel said that in his statement that it was a problem with the lead characters and that he's noticing it and that he's apologizing it. The director did a horrible job, in my opinion, and from the opinion of a lot of people on social media, he did a piss poor job of trying to respond to what she was saying in the interview. Um, I understand being proud of the art and the work that you put forward, but I'm glad and hopefully, you know, this will really be a learning point moving forward of the diversity, not just in, we just need diversity. How about that? Um, it is a lot of hurt and pain from what I have been told uh, about the lack of representation of the Afro-Latina community in this film. And it is clear in the picture, in the trailer, in the scenes that I have watched, um, you know, it, it definitely, from what I have seen, overshadowed the work that was done on the film uh, because of the criticism that it's getting. I, like I said, have not watched it yet. I was very excited to see it come out. I know a lot of other people were very excited to see it come out and I hate that this criticism and colorism has overshadowed it, but this is an important conversation to have. Um, and it's not a new one. You know, we have this conversation a lot when it comes to Hollywood. So I think that's where the disappointment comes in, that somebody that we normally, um, don't have to worry about these issues with came out with a film that still lacked the diversity that it needed to have especially within the context of the film that it was In the Heights is about Washington Heights and it is a diverse and very uh, high population of the Afro-Latina community that was not represented other than in the ensemble cast so hopefully this really is a learning experience but Again, this is a larger conversation that we can seem to continue to have when it comes to Hollywood of the lack of representation of different groups disenfranchised, particularly in the entertainment industry, of, of course, among other industries. So I do hope that this is a learning experience. I do hope that, um, you know, I'm still going to watch the film. I'll let y'all know what I think about it. Um, but do better Hollywood overall just do better I've got much more show coming up for you you don't want to miss it I still got Erica Benson coming up that she's going to tell us about all the things so send in your questions now you can tweet me at Tiff Linnell C-I-F-F-L-A-N-E-L-L-E -E, uh, to answer those questions uh, before the uh, interview with Erica Benson that's coming up I got more show for you I'll be right back we're taking a quick break more Tiffany talks after these messages Welcome back to Tiffany Talks. I am your host, Tiffany Linnell. If you missed any of the first hour of the show, you can always check out the podcast. If you're listening to the podcast now, thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the family if you're new. If you're not, hey. 
anyway, I got so much more show coming up for you. Uh, coming up in just a few minutes, I have the Erica Vincent, who is a speaker, activist, advocate, uh, eco-womanist, just all around dope woman. You do not want to miss that conversation and family discussion. Uh, but in the last hour, I talked about Darnella Frazier getting a special citation from the Pulitzer Prize uh, Board, uh, QA non-followers, QA nonning, uh, BLM protesters overwhelmingly peaceful. I uh, don't forget to check out my social media to see that article. Uh, the two black students who had to share their honors with two white students, I can't even go over that again. I don't feel like being mad again. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who was confirmed as a judge and is also a SCOTUS top pick and Lin-Manuel colorism. So we had a full first hour. We have our, uh, have a, so much more show. You never know what's going to happen when Erica comes on the show. So if you're new here, Erica is a really, 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 really dope woman. Um, so I'm telling you, you don't want to miss that conversation, but it's always fun. So I got that coming up for you in the next few minutes. You do not want to miss that. Uh, also, it has been six years six years since the Charleston, South Carolina shooting at Mother Emanuel AME. Six years. Six years. Six years, y'all. Um, in honor of the six years that have gone by since the tragedy of nine people being slain in June 2015, when white supremacists and domestic terrorists opened fire in a Bible study group at the church, they are going to hold a series of events this week to remember those lost in the shooting, including a forum on Thursday that will include the families of the Emmanuel Nine victims, Sarah Collins, Rudolph, who survived the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Alabama in 1963 and Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, who survived the Tree of Life Synagogue Massacre in 2018 in Pittsburgh. Um, they're going to have a conversation on reconciliation, justice, and healing. Now, I want to be clear. Reconciliation cannot happen until we have acknowledgement in any conversation. It just can't. And part of my issue in this country is there's not enough acknowledgement of the trauma and the pain and the racist roots and the racism that's still occurring and, and, and still prevalent in our society and in the hearts of people. Until we really deal with the roots of some of this pain and trauma and the tragedies of life lost throughout time and generations, we cannot have full reconciliation. My opinion, we just can't. We gotta have real, real conversations about the issues at hand. Um, this was a terrible, terrible tragedy. Uh, the church is one of the oldest AME churches in the Deep South. It was founded in 1816 by abolitionist minister Morris Brown. Um, so I, we still remember the families. My heart is still with all of the families, not just of the Mother Emanuel shooting, but to the countless lives we've lost in race riots, in massacres, in domestic terrorism. We got a lot of work to do, y'all. Um, if you want more information about the events taking place, then you can look up the Mother Emanuel Memorial Foundation, who is also building a uh, Emanuel Nine Memorial 
or you can go to the church's website for more information on that as well. I believe the event is also, the series are also on uh, Eventbrite. So you can find out more information there. Uh, I've got more show for you coming up. Uh, Coming up, Erica Vincent is going to tell us about Keystone Pipeline and Line 3, among other things that, you know, she's just smart. So keep it locked. I'll be right back. Tiffany Talks. Go, Penny, go. Welcome back to Tiffany Talks. Thanks so much for joining me today. I've been talking about her coming on the show. I'm so, so, so glad to have her back. Uh, For those of you who are not new to Tiffany Talks, you've heard uh, this woman come on and drop her dope knowledge before. I've welcomed her back so she can inform us and educate us once again. Please welcome back to the Tiffany Talks show, Mrs. Erica Vincent. Hi, Erica. Hello. Thank you so much for coming back. You know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Working. (laughs) Well, you know, okay, so I forgot to mention this uh, before we got on air, but you do have a, a, a recent development in your life. I guess it's not so recent. It's about six months. Almost done now. We're almost done now. (laughs) But since the last time you were on the show, uh, there's a a gift, a blessing that is baking, if you will. Baking. Yay. Someone is stitching feet. (laughs) Listen, two of them. Two of them. You stitching two whole feet, two Two, whole hands. Two eyes. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing going on in your in your womb. I'm making a person out here. You are out here making a person. So look at God from the Tiffany Talks team. Congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> we are almost done. <laughs> almost done, but we're very excited for you. Uh, maybe I should not wait to have you so long because you're making a baby. Um, <laughs> the person is made at this point. At this point, and got a little attitude, a little personality, if you will. Um, <laughs> that's a deep sigh, ladies and gentlemen. That's a deep sigh. So we're going to go ahead and move on to the topic at hand before that escalates quickly. <laughs> Listen, that's a whole other show. That's a whole other show. (laughs) We'll have to have a mommy and me show um, at some point. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, today we're going to talk about the very controversial Keystone Pipeline and, you know, all things surrounding it. Um, So, just for those who are new to the topic or anything like that, can you kind of give a very brief uh, summary of the significance of Keystone Pipeline, the fight, um, and the recent development? Yeah, and I can be really quick because I'm certainly not the expert but um, on this, but having worked in the environmental movement for quite some time, um, I have I have some tangential knowledge of pipelines in general. Um, and pipe- so pipelines are always in in building in built in building stages and in flux. There are many pipelines that run through uh, the United States of America uh, that run to different parts of our coastlines. Um, and the reason why they run to coastlines is because they are then put on oil rigs, typically, and shipped um, to different parts of the country or different parts of the world. Uh, and so, with that being said. 
Um, there is uh, a number of pipelines that have been proposed, I would say over the course of the last decade um, that have gotten a lot of national attention um, for a lot of reasons. One, because, you know, as a, an environmental justice advocate or envir- environmental justice advocate, um, you know, we want to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Uh, we don't want to encourage uh, the um, the trend the the transportation as well or the drilling of fossil fuels. You know, obviously we're trying to move or hopefully trying to move as a globe toward towards more cleaner energy options. Um, so one of the strategies of the environmental movement is to fight pipelines. Um, again, because we want to keep fossil fuels in the ground, but also because oftentimes, more often than not, especially in America, but also in Canada and other parts of North America, uh, pipelines typically run through indigenous lands. Um, and so Keystone XL is no different. Um, it was proposed to run through indigenous land in the Dakotas, I believe. Uh, there's also the Dakota Access pipeline um, that was kind of going on, that buzz was going on around the same time. Uh, And so the Keystone XL pipeline um, was a fight that went on for many years uh, to build this pipeline. Um, And indigenous communities uh, in in that part of the United States, or what is now called the United States, I should say, um, fought it camped, protested, did different direct actions, did different arrestable actions, uh, and um, fought it tooth and nail for years. Um, And so with that being said, you know, uh, it's not, Keystone is not unique in that sense that it's going through indigenous lands and there are indigenous people trying to fight it for health reasons, for treaty reasons, for sacred land reasons. Um, it, it's, it's not unique in that way, but it is unique in the way that it <clears throat> it, it now has been has been stopped. Right, which is great. Um, and you, you mentioned something that I want to uh, highlight really quickly. You said arrestable offenses, and I don't want uh, a negative connotation to be attached to that because arrestable offenses, and we talk about criminal justice, social justice, you know, prison industrial complex, all of that on the show. Arrestable offenses can be as simple as staying out past a, a, an imposed curfew that is only imposed. To try and prevent protests, so that is an is an example of an arrestable offense. It's not looting or you know causing fire. Those can be things, but that's when we're talking about arrestable offenses during peaceful protests and campouts and things of that nature. Those are more along the lines of the arrestable offenses that we're talking about: staying out past curfew, blockading uh, roads or streets or things like that to get a point across. We're not talking about you know throwing a bottle of gasoline into a store. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to highlight that. Um, in That's a really good point. <clears throat> right, in movement spaces. That's a really good point. And I'm glad you said that, Tiff, because I also want to say that when it comes to, you know, no no one in the environmental movement, in my opinion, in any really social justice movements, should... People don't often, I'll say this, people don't often do arrestable actions on their own. 
They do, it happens, but typically it is organized and coordinated. So people have decided we are going to do this thing that we know is going to get us arrested, but they also, right. you know, organizations and coalitions have jail support. They have lawyers. Yes. They have, you know, they have a plan of how they're going to get people out, of how right. to fight this or whatever have you, get people just citations and then pay the pay people citations. There's right. a whole, you know, when you see people, you know, often people talk about like Greenpeace or other organizations that are more radical in that way. When you see people like attached, like um, handcuffing themselves to equipment and things like that. Right. Typically, more often than not, there is a whole team of people behind them yes. that has a plan to move in once that person is arrested. Yes. Um, and, right. So this is not, they're not violent. Like you said, we're not talking about people looting and stuff. We're talking about anything from being on an easement where they're supposed to start drilling for mm-hmm. a pipeline all the way up to you know, handcuffing yourself to a tree that's supposed to get cut down. Right. Um, or sitting in a tree. We've seen a lot of that of like people climbing trees or climbing equipment and things like that. And more often than not, there's a whole team of people that already plan that and have a plan on how they're going to move in on that. Now you can do it on your own, but I wouldn't advise it because then you don't have the support you need to move through the, the, the justice system. Um, so people don't take People don't typically do that. Um, and so, uh, and there were some arrestable offenses happening last week um, for another pipeline that I know we're going to talk about later. Yes. And, you know, when you think of it, John Lewis is a classic example of someone who had arrestable offenses. Right. He was arrested over 45 times in his lifetime. Um, and of course, John Lewis was not a violent person. So when y'all hear arrestable offenses, think of people in movement work like John Lewis. The list could go on, so I won't even go down the full list and all of the different movement spaces and actions um, for for justice and, and equitable rights. Um, so you mentioned something about treaty rights. I want to read this uh, quick tweet from Corey Bush, um, who, you know, we love Corey Bush here at the show. Nope. Dope, period. Um, And she mentioned, now that the Keystone XL pipeline has been stopped, it's a great time to go ahead and stop line three, two. For treaty rights, for sovereignty, for every person in the Mississippi watershed. Now I know line three was not stopped. Um, So this tweet was, you know, from a couple of days ago, right after the Keystone decision happened. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what tweets like this mean? What is line three? Why and why should it have been stopped? And I guess what happens now that it wasn't? So just for context, um, so Keystone XL permits have been denied by the Biden administration earlier this year. I believe it was January. I think it was the day of inauguration or the day after. It was like that week um, when, when Joe Biden was sitting in his office like frantically (laughs) signing executive orders and and trying to undo some of the trash. There isn't. There isn't. Um, (laughs) That had been happening for the last four years. Where were we the last four years? I wasn't here. I'm going to be honest. Listen, listen. So I think, so with Keystone, it was a victory because it was like when there was no way, oftentimes when the United States pulls out of things like that, because the United States and Canada, obviously, 
physically border each other, but also have to work together for permits when it comes to pipelines more often than not, because the drilling, a lot of the drilling happens in Northern Canada or in Alaska. And so you have to get that oil, that those fossil fuels from up there all the way to the Gulf or all the way to the Western United States or wherever those ports are. And so there have to be pipelines to transport that crude oil. And so when Joe Biden canceled the Keystone pipeline permits for the United States and cited it, you know, Keystone as not advantageous basically for our country, it was a big deal. And we all kind of were waiting for TC Energy, which is the owner of the pipeline, the developer of the pipeline, to just cancel it. It was like, that was the nail right. in the coffin for Keystone. We knew that uh, there was no way for them to continue to build it without the United States permits. And so once those were canceled, it was just a matter of time. And so okay. TC Energy canceled it last week or whatever, whenever that happens. Um, so Cory Bush is absolutely right. Keystone was canceled and line three needed to be canceled. So line three, there's another one called Trans Mountain that I don't know a ton about. And then there's line five in Michigan that the governor of Michigan already was like, we don't want that. We don't need that. And we know, I'm trying to remember her name, but I know that she's dope and she don't play the radio. Right. <laughs> um, she is, that, is that the one that they would have to uh, basically disrupt other infrastructure systems or, or something like that? Something like that. And also the governor of Michigan is pretty progressive in general. Right. Um, and they had been, but yeah, you're right. You're right. And also it was supposed to potentially spill, like it would have spilled crude oil right. and leaked into the Great Lakes. Yeah. So she was like, no, we're not Governor uh, Governor Gretchen Whit- Whit- Whitmer. Whitmer, yeah. She's yeah. great. Um, and then actually the folks, some of the folks that I work with at my job were like, okay, so how can we get Governor Gretchen to call the governor of Minnesota? Right. Dude, like, none of us need any of this. Right. Um, And so... So moving on to line three, um, Tuesday morning, uh, the decision came down from the Minnesota Court of Appeals. Uh, There had been a huge lawsuit with many different plaintiffs, including some folks that, um, including people that I work with um, that were on kind of, not on plaintiff lists, but like helping out certain groups um, that were on this plaintiff list uh, regarding the permits for line three. Um, The line three was supposed to go through some indigenous land in northern Minnesota um, against trees and sovereignty um, and was supposed to drill under the Mississippi River in two spots. Excuse me. It's supposed to drill under the Mississippi River in two spots. And um, they were trying to get those permits revoked and saying that um, the Minnesota regulators that gave those permits um, that Enbridge, you know, wasn't lawfully allowed to have those permits again for many reasons, including treaties and other things. I mean, they wanted them to be reevaluated, so they had to go to, through the Minnesota Court of Appeals because it had been decided from the regulator standpoint that they did everything right and that right. Enbridge did everything they were supposed to do. Um, and uh, and the Minnesota Court of Appeals. They had appealed it. The Minnesota Court of Appeals was looking at it. So they have been waiting for this decision for some time. And on Tuesday morning, we heard the decision come down two to one. Uh, There are three three judges um, on that judging panel. And uh, it came down two to one um, that Enbridge, the company that owns and develops the Line 3 Pipeline, won. 
Um, and the reason why this is connected to Keystone is because, and the reason why a lot of us are so hot about it and really looking at the Biden administration is because quite literally, Joe Biden and the Biden administration could have denied the permits, could have ended construction for line three the exact same way they did it with Keystone. Quite literally the exact same way. And they didn't. And there were a lot of calls to the Biden administration to end line three. I'm glad Senator Bush said that or Congresswoman Bush said that because Again, it could have been the exact same way. And we have been banging the drum and yelling at the Biden administration since January mm-hmm. to do the same thing. And they didn't. Um, mm-hmm. And so for that, um, yeah, it was just a really hard day to see that, you know, it went through when we thought we had so much hope that it wouldn't. Right. OK, so I got to take a break. Um, you teach me something new every time we talk. Uh, so I'm going to take a break. But we have more conversation about the impacts, what's next um, and, and all that good stuff. And yeah, so keep it locked. We'll be right back. Tiffany Talks. Welcome back to Tiffany Talks. Uh, if you missed any of this show, including the last segment with our guest, Mrs. Erica Vincent, then you can, of course, always check out the podcast version so that you can hear all of the wonderful information uh, that she has already shared with us. Um, she agreed to stay, hallelujah, uh, so that we can hear some more information. So, Erica, you were talking about uh, the fact that the Biden administration really could have done the exact same thing that they just happened with, that just happened with Keystone where the permits were canceled, um, that they could have done the exact same thing verbatim for line three that just went through. So now that line three has, you know, the battle basically was lost in the court over the permits. What are the impacts of line three kind of when the developers winning this battle, so to speak? Yeah, so, so basically, um, there was so many, so much anticipation over this uh, this winter because they were trying to get the they were trying to get the Minnesota Court of Appeals decision down for a lot of reasons quickly. One of them, from an environmental standpoint, was they wanted to drill under the Mississippi River. They have to drill under the Mississippi River, as I mentioned in the last segment, in two spots. Um, but if the river is frozen over. They can't drill. So it. it was interesting because folks in Minnesota were like, you know, climate change. It, it right. got hotter earlier or got right. hotter from places earlier. And the folks in Minnesota were like, oh my gosh, it's so pretty outside. And also, not yet. Because <laughs> there's only two seasons in Minnesota. Winter right. and construction. That's what they told us. That's winter. what they told us when we went. <laughs> there's winter and then there's construction. There's construction. So, um, so they were like, you know, it's so pretty outside. And also, wait, not yet. You know, we don't want the river to thaw yet because we don't want them to be able to get to the river. And Enbridge has been moving fast, like very fast. Got it. Because they knew that this decision was coming down and they felt like if this decision comes down and we're not done or largely done um, and can't either reroute or, you know, make another plan if we don't get permits to drill under the river or whatever have you, um, you know, 
they can get slapped with like fines and stuff, but okay. they're not gonna pull pipe up out of the river, or up out of the ground that's already there. Right. So like they would be more interested. We got money coming out of our ears. So if you tell us, you know, to stop in some places or whatever, or tell us to stop um, drilling or not drilling, sorry, tell us to stop construct- constructing in some places, mm-hmm. and we've already done that mm-hmm. in other places, we'll pay you the fines and move on and, and move on. But we can still construct our pipeline, you know, or still like reroute it or whatever. So anyways, so that was part of it. It was like, we don't want the rivers to thaw yet. Um, but also, uh, you know, this means for, you know, the decision coming down uh, from the Minnesota Court of Appeals, they can now drill under the Mississippi River. It is completely, you know, thawed. It's summertime. Um, so they can start drilling under it. I have a colleague that was camping on the easement near the Mississippi River this weekend with other folks that were doing um, a peaceful camp out. Um, they were allowed to stay there through the weekend. Uh, and, you know, weren't arrested. They had negotiated that with the authorities. Um, I believe that they are going to get citations, but um, didn't believe that they would be arrested. So I think they left this afternoon. Uh, There was a treaty people gathering this past week where thousands of people came out to um, include it, led by um, a lot of the indigenous activists up there. you know, basically demanding that the Minnesota Court of Appeals and that, you know, Enbridge stop constructing. But we always knew that it was, you know, a yes or no. It was one or way, it was going to go one way or the other. So now right. that this has happened, um, it's not impossible, but this was an overall win. This win of these particular permits, of the especially citing the drilling under the river, Mm-hmm. was going to be able to kind of overall halt construction and make it harder for Enbridge to start back up again. Now that this has happened, there are ways to fight the pipeline in pieces, mm-hmm. but this overall win would have been just easier. So it's not over, excuse me, but it's certainly harder. It certainly makes it harder to um, to get this pipeline ended. And again, in various places and spaces, Enbridge could keep building, keep constructing, keep putting pipe in the ground and just, you know, pay a fine and keep on moving. Right. So I've seen a lot of, and you just mentioned this, um, for for treaties, but this, of course, will have an impact to uh, the Mississippi watershed as uh, referenced in the Congresswoman Cori Bush's tweet and as you just mentioned as well. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of impacts, it sounds like, to watershed, to the treaties, um, and honestly, quite honestly, and quite literally, the United States has an issue breaking treaties. Yes. Historically speaking, they have a habit of breaking treaties with indigenous peoples and indigenous nations. Um, so it's not like this is the first time that they would have broken a treaty um, or that an organization, like capitalism at its finest, literally. Um, but the um, tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds like this is impacts to um, 
you know, our ecosystem to watershed, to, which of course watershed, for anyone who doesn't know, when you're referencing a watershed, you're talking about literally water supply to yes. municipalities, to cities, to full states in some instances. Um, so this could have a residential impacts as well as treaty impacts, as well as climate impacts, as well as the list goes on and on and on. Um, so this is a huge problem. So you mentioned uh, that now it can be kind of broken up into pieces and it'll be a little bit harder to fight. Are there any resources or anything that people can tap into if they are interested in joining the fight or at least tracking the information? Yeah, and I and I want to say thank you for that because I want to definitely say from a ecosystem standpoint and from a environmental injustice standpoint, reiterating your point about watersheds and uh, groundwater and people's water. I tweeted this earlier today, and I want to say it verbally. There's no such thing as a safe pipeline. Just like there's no such thing as clean coal. It's the same. Right. It's the same myth. Pipelines burst, they break, they leak. I don't care what organization or company says, oh, we've, you know, re reinforced it with this material or we've improved our construction in this way or that way. Right. Pipelines leak. That is it. And so when you drill pipelines under rivers and rivers supply fresh water to towns, to indigenous nations, to, you know, reservations and all of their, and you know, all of their unjustness um uh when you do that you endanger the lives of these people that live there and you know not only that from a environmental injustice standpoint from a health standpoint but also just uh, like you said with treaties these are sacred lands for these people for indigenous people these are sacred lands these are the lands of their ancestors in many instances there's the lands that they have been transported to during the trail of tears and other relocation unjust relocation um you know practices and so with that being said um you know there's like you said there's so many implications and so much injustice around building these pipelines in the way that they build them through and you're not building them through some rich white town i mean let's be honest ain't no rich white town gonna be okay with you building a pipeline through it right right and that's just what it is right and that goes hand in hand with the conversation you know we have family conversations at tiffany talks that goes <laughs> hand in hand with the family conversations we were having last week about the historical nature of the different forms of domestic terrorism honestly right. because you have cities like uh, the city that I talked about on the show last week Quaker Town where they built a school for white women at the edge of the town and literally moved an entire city of black people out of quote their way Right. Um, you have, of course, the Tulsa massacre that we just had to um, memorialize. Memorialize. Yeah. Was that last week, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, yeah. Um, and you have Juneteenth coming up. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, it's... <sighs> it's state-sanctioned violence. Period. State-sanctioned violence. That's it. Period. We like to call things as they are here, so that's that's it. That's on period. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah I got nothing else I want to end on a happy note so I want to mention this quick story that I saw online 
where a teen was going to miss his graduation to uh, work his shift at Waffle House. And his boss was not having it. Um, (laughs) So his boss, uh, it was a um, young African-American teen. His co-workers uh, basically helped him and his name was Timothy Harrison. And so he was a server at Waffle House. Timothy Harrison, congratulations to you. His boss said, I was going to get him there no matter what. Um, had you heard of, have you heard about this story? No. No, I haven't, but that's hysterical. Hysterical. <laughs> The whole Waffle House staff came together and was like, your high school graduation? No, 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 no. You've got to go to that. Um, So this was in Centerpoint, Alabama. They helped him get to his graduation. Kudos to the staff, kudos to his boss uh, and his coworkers. I think that that's absolutely great. So I'd like to end on a happy note, or I try to, because I'm normally (laughs) going off on this show. (laughs) So... Any final thoughts, uh, Erica, that you want to share with the people and how can they keep in touch with you? Yes. So you asked, I realized you asked me a direct question and I went off on a tangent. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> there are many indigenous and other organizations that uh, do pipeline work. Um, Oil Free International is a, a, a national organization that has pipeline information. Also Indigenous Environmental Network. Um, and there are a couple of others uh, that are following this and that are uh, doing work with young people who are doing work around line three and other pipelines. So if you're interested in learning more, Indigenous Environmental Network is a great organization to plug into um, to learn more information. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there are others that they're connected to as well, but they're just top of mind. Uh, So get in touch with me. Um, You can find me on Instagram at e.4foreco womanist on Instagram. Um, I'm also uh, have a Facebook page um, that you can find out where I am speaking. I try to post like where I'm speaking and stuff on that page. Um, and that's just Erica Vincent, speaker, commentator. And then um, there's uh, ericavincent.com. And I try to keep that updated with like all my speaking engagements and things like that. Awesome. I will post all of that on uh, the Tiffany Talks, Tiffany Linnell social media today. Uh, So if you missed any of that, I will post that on my Instagram, Twitter, and my Facebook pages as well. And if you're not already following those, then you're late. So uh, (laughs) go ahead and make sure you do that. And then while you're at it, uh, follow Miss Erica, Mrs. Erica Vincent. Um, Congratulations on your bundle again. So happy for you. And um, I guess I have to wait until after uh, the bundle of joy gets here to have you back. But I mean, I feel like you can have a baby on your boob and (laughs) and do a little recording. No, I'm gonna be at work. I'm on on calls. Like I'm putting turning my video off, but I'm here. I got it right. Listen, and it just is what it is. (laughs) Got to move out. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. Feeding a human. It's gotta eat. Right. Listen. (laughs) So. 
we of course will have you back here at the show thank you again for coming thank y'all so much for tuning in to uh, Tiffany Talks that is going to do it for me if you missed any of this episode of course you can catch it on Spotify Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and you also want to make sure you uh, tune in 11am 1pm Boss FM Talk 11am Eastern 1pm Eastern and then right after me is Unmuted Nation so you've got an all new Unmuted Nation coming up right after me with Alex Haynes you don't want to miss that either don't forget be safe be blessed and let god be god today that's gonna do it for me y'all have a good one follow tiffany linnell on social media at tiff linnell on instagram twitter and facebook tiffany talks and the tiffany talks podcast are registered trademarks each show is broadcast and powered by boss fm 